0: Check out idealwine.com for more information. That's I D E A L W I N E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Thomas Pastizak on the show. Hello, sir. How are you? How are you? So you're the wine director over at the, the Nomad Hotel there? Correct, indeed. But uh, before that, you uh, as, as a younger man, you were into music. you playing the piano a lot.
1: Yes. I actually um, grew up um, here in New York City. My, my family's actually have a musical background, um, specifically on my mom's side. Um, we have some dancers, uh, some singers, some some violinists and pianists as well. So for me, uh, music was sort of always a part of my life growing up. And so naturally it made sense to sort of go in that direction. I started out as a violinist, hated it, went into piano and fell in love with it. And so for that matter, stayed in piano and was performing basically, you know, through high school and then going into college. And so then you got to college and what happened next? So basically... Even before getting into college, when I was still in high school, I got into an accident over one of my summers. I didn't so, know that. Yeah, it was uh, <laughs> it was pretty bad. I got I was bicycling. I was working as a lifeguard and also working as a pianist to make a little bit of extra cash. Got totally sideswiped by a car, like dragged, thrown, lost a lot of skin on my legs, broke my collarbone, and uh, unfortunately, you know, couldn't quite recover to you know get back into the competition circle.
0: Yeah, because the collarbone thing, I had that happened to me. And they can't set it because they puncture along. Mm-hmm. So then you just have to deal with the pain for a long time. Yeah, and
1: um, it was like no flexibility, no mobility. And basically it kind of um, painted the direction for me. So I was still doing um, science at the time. I was doing a lot of research, getting into medicine, you know, really inspired by it. But that basically like set my path. At that point, you know, I couldn't, you know, get back into piano as, you know, adamantly as I was before. And so, you know, science just sort of opened a lot of doors of opportunity for me. So it continued in that direction.
0: Did you kind of channel that loss into a drive in the other directions of your life where you're kind of like, well, this was taken away from me. I'm going to try extra hard on this other stuff.
1: Yeah. I mean, for me, it was like, I was very, very down about it for a good long while because, you know, it's like you have this release, you have this thing that totally allows you to disconnect and feel absolutely relaxed while at the same time being a very focused endeavor. So, you know, Not having that anymore, I was like, okay, where am I going to find that sort of level of drive? Where am I going to be able to focus my efforts? So, yeah, that sort of pushed me in the direction of science a little bit more. But when I did actually recover from the injury, I still pursued piano and decided to say, you know what? I was really, really in love with this. You know, even before the accident, I want to continue in that direction. So when I went to school, um, I did a double major. I kept on with classical piano and actually, you know, did quite a bit with it. Still continued to travel. I did a little bit more on the research side of music and still performed. Um, But I was focused on science as like the thing that I was going to do with my life.
0: And so while you were in school, you started working in restaurants?
1: So, yeah, I mean, I think when I was growing up, I spent my summers out on the east end of Long Island. My godfather, his family had a bed and breakfast on Shelter Island, actually. So I was like a toast boy when I was 13. You know, I got into uh, landscaping, doing a lot of, you know, lawn mowing, dumpster duty, all kinds of things as I was growing up. And then it was always kind of around Um, But getting into college, I realized that, hey, you know, restaurants seem to pay a little bit better than lifeguarding. So, you know, just started to to sort of uh, go in that direction, was a server, became a bartender, you know, did the thing that everyone does. And I think naturally it sort of, you know, satisfied that sort of adrenaline rush. And it was something that was just always around. So I could be in the classroom all week long, focus my efforts on studies. And then like Friday night comes around and I'm at the restaurant like all weekend. I'm there, you know, Friday afternoon until Sunday afternoon, get back into school you know, make some good money. And it was, you know, a great rush for me. And it also was my sort of social outlet. I wasn't really into the uh, college party scene, you know, very much. I wasn't the frat guy. So this uh, sort of gave me an opportunity to get exposed with a, you know, a, a crowd that I found pretty mature and pretty well-rounded. And so for me, it was really satisfying. And,
0: uh, it, you know, it is a really physical business. So maybe it was a way of, of channeling some of that energy that you'd had earlier release of, but couldn't find a, a great way to do it after the injury?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, for me, and I was, you know, very physical. I was, you know, into running, I was into hiking. So that sort of, you know, adrenaline was, you know, and it was an easy release to get when you didn't have much time. And again, I mean, I was still doing the piano thing at the time and I could always balance. If I, If I was sick and tired of organic chemistry, you know, I could sit down and practice, you know, and basically go through some scores, you know, do that. When I got satisfied with that, when I was practice enough for the day, you know, could go back into the science direction, you know, crack the books again. And so it was always a good balance. It was all about when I didn't want to do a little bit more of that thing, I could go on to the other one. And so it was always sort of a back and forth. And for me, I think that balance was very satisfying. My mind, I think, works in, those, in both of those directions quite a bit. So I can't ever be 100% in one. I think I need to have that balance. And what was the
0: progression at the restaurant?
1: So, um, this is a a, a small restaurant initially uh, in Ithaca at Cornell, uh, where I was. It's uh, Stella's. So, I was a bartender there, you know, eventually became sort of a floor manager, bar manager. When I graduated and I was taking my MCATs and preparing to go to medical school, you know, I was offered the opportunity to take over the restaurant as a GM. Which I took because, you know, wanting to go to medical school, I was like, okay, this will look great on your resume. You know, you'll have managerial, managerial experience. experience. You know, in med school, they don't want some kid who's just like in the lab all the time. They want somebody who can interact with people, has personality, has experience, you know, dealing with, you know, other components of other industries. So it seemed like a great opportunity, you know, went for it. And it was two years that I did this and I've sort of helped grow the company and I grew myself and got more and more into wine, especially visiting my brother who's in San Francisco, so I can go to Sonoma and Napa. I was so into the culture of food and wine at this point and sort of seeing what, you know, New York restaurateurs were doing and New York sommeliers were doing. I was like, you know what? I can do the med school thing if I want to, but right now there's so much going on in this culture. I want to see what I can do there. And you know what? If it doesn't work out, if I crash and burn... I have the exams. I have the credentials. I can go and do the med school thing, but you know, haven't really looked back since.
0: But how how did the family feel though?
1: Oof, yeah, not so uh, not so hot. Um, unfortunately, you know, I come from a, a background where my parents were like, listen, if you're going to do something to support your family, you know, to have a good life, you need to be a doctor or a businessman. I think it's kind of the classic like first generation American immigrant parents kind of model, and so they were like, you got to do a stable thing. And so you know, I was personally very, you know, inspired and wanting to go in the direction of medicine. It's not like I was forced upon it. Um, But when I made the decision to not do it and to, you know, go into restaurants, you know, it was kind of a bit of a, you know, hit. And they were like, wow, so you're going to be a glorified waiter for the rest of your life. And I'm like, well, you know, I have, you're some like, aspiration. I think I want to do some great things. Um, and I think I can. So, you know, if the opportunities arise, I want to go for it. Um, but now we're at a point where, you know, they've kind of accepted it and they see that, you know, there are a lot of positive outcomes and quality of life. And Are you they know. calling
0: you for wine suggestions now?
1: <laughs> yeah, actually. So, my family's never, they've never been big wine drinkers, but it's like, I come home for Christmas with like, you know, a couple cases of wine. I'm like, okay, guys, this
0: should last you a couple months. Like, enjoy. I'll see you in the summer. And, you know, we'll go from there. And speaking about wine, you kind of got into the Finger Lakes uh, wines of, uh, when you were working up upstate.
1: Yeah, um, you know, the, the breadth of wine knowledge that people, you know, have in smaller towns, um, you know, is not necessarily as extensive as what you'd see in New York, for instance. Um, that being said, you know, I was running a cool list like, you know. About 50 to 100, like really carefully curated bottles um, at the wine program, at least one of the restaurants that I was running. Um, And while I was like reading a lot and tasting as much as I could and coming down to New York City to tastings, like, you know, with the big distributors, I was also making good friends with some of the producers upstate. Now, the area kind of has this bad reputation because for a long time, there hasn't been very high quality wine made, you know, vinifera varietals like Riesling, Chardonnay, et cetera haven't really, weren't introduced into the area until about like 50 or 60 years ago. So there's not really, um, you know, a long history of fine winemaking. So for me, it was really inspiring to every now and again, come across this small, like, you know, farmer, husband and wife team who are making, you know, maybe like a thousand or 2000 cases at the most, um, you know, and making some really, really high quality Riesling and Chard and, you know, kind of got inspired by it because I was like, you know what, it's not that different a model. From what you see in Alsace or in Austria or in Burgundy. Um, you know, this is basically like, this is their life. You know, they're making very, very high quality wine from the best fruit that they can, that they can get uh, from their own farm, from their own vineyard, and making something that's really inspiring. And it was not the model that everyone else seemed to think uh, was, you know, de rigueur in the finger lease. It was not, you know, uh, basically, you know, cheap wine that is sweet, you know, or or chapter or is sweetened purposefully for the local market. Um, It was something that actually could, in my perspective, you know, have a place on the global scene. So for me, I kind of made it a, a personal mission at some point to say, these wines need to get recognition or at least exposure beyond, you know, these sort of, you know, smaller categories. They need to get onto a scene like New York because I think that if people taste how good these wines are, at least you know the few producers that I was becoming really close with, then I think there could be a possibility for you know future growth in the area and other people realizing, hey, there's great reputation of these smaller producers. A lot of serious wine professionals find quality here. I think we should all follow that model.
0: And it looks like you were looking towards New York, Manhattan, not just for the wine market in terms of introducing those Finger Lakes wines to that market, but also you were looking at it in terms of inspiration for restaurateurship. kind of, you had some models in mind.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, for myself growing up in New York City, spending basically my whole life here until college, uh, you know, I saw people like Drew Nieperant, you know, Danny Meyer, um, you know, I, I saw these guys doing incredible things and creating culture. And I realized that, you know, at some point, I, don't, I didn't know if I was able to do that, you know, given the limitations of a smaller town and that if I was going to do something big, I should try it in New York City. It was a market that I was unfamiliar with. You know, I didn't have any real professional connections in New York at the time, but I knew New York City. You know, I, I, I'd grown up there, so I knew that at the very least, like, you know, I could figure out subways, you know, renting, et cetera, et cetera. Like the stupid logistical stuff that, you know, is actually really intimidating for people who haven't ever been in New York, so again, kind of figured, well, I can give it a you know give it a shot, and if it works out, that's awesome, and if it doesn't, then you know
0: move on to Plan B. And what did you take from those inspirations? I mean, what were you looking at when you saw someone like Danny Meyer? What, what, did, how did that speak to you? You know, I
1: saw Danny and other restaurateurs of 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 his caliber not just creating restaurants that put out good food, but, you know, we're really bringing people in and giving people a great experience. Um, It was hospitality, it was great food, great wine, and something that really elevated culture. It was people going into restaurants, not because they had to, and it was the only job they could do, but because they were intelligent, thoughtful people who wanted to create something novel, that wanted to really bring people together and raise quality of life. And I kind of keep mentioning this because you know, for me, good food, good wine, and bringing people together and having a good time, that for me is essentially what I define as, you know, a great quality of life mixed in with being able to travel and, you know, have fun elsewhere. But, you know, for me, I saw that this was a a significant shift in the restaurant culture, um, you know, especially in a big city like New York City. And I wanted to be a part of that. And I wanted to either, you know, do that on my own or become a part of, you know, a group or put myself alongside people who had that similar sort of mindset.
0: And so that did come about, but how did it come about? You were making some calls looking for some wine or what happened? So it
1: was actually, it all came together very quickly and in a sort of unexpected uh, sort of way. I'm not necessarily like a huge risk taker. Like if I see something that looks good, you know, I'll go for it. But at the same time, you know, this wasn't something that I was seeking necessarily, you know, Outright, so basically, I was in Ithaca. I was you know working in the restaurant scene. I was buying wines from Polliner selections and from uh, other distributors and when I found that certain producers that I was really inspired by uh, had left a certain portfolio, I wanted to go seek them out. so it turns out that you know two particular labels that I was in, you know really really excited about moved over to uh, Grand Cru selections, this distributorship that um, Robert Bohr and Ned Benedict are partners in. And, you know, I got in touch with those guys. I'm like, hey, you know, I like these wines. I hear you guys have them. Um, What's the deal? Can I get, can I pick these up upstate? Do you guys ship up here? Ended up setting up a tasting, you know, coming down, meeting with them. And while in New York City, kind of realized that, you know, there were a lot of people who weren't familiar with some of the wines that I was getting excited about upstate. And so, they're like, hey, if you want, we'll set up a table at our future, you know, at one of our portfolio tastings if you want to bring a couple bottles and, you know, maybe, you know, show off a couple of these wines. Because at this point, you know, I was buying wine from them and we had established sort of a relationship. I was like, sure, that sounds great. Um, You know, it's fall of 2010. They're doing a portfolio tasting. I get a table, bring down some cool Finger Lakes Rieslings, at least wines that I thought were going to be fun and were great. And, you know, got some people really jazzed about it, got some people excited about it. Um, you know, Robert, he said, Hey, listen, you know, opportunities are always coming up in New York. If you're interested, let me know, you know, maybe something will open up down the line. I said, keep me posted. And then it was, you know, a month or two later, uh, that he said, Hey, there's a position at Clickio and Sons. You know, at the time, Robert was overseeing, um, all of Tom Clickio's wine programs and sort of, you know, advising and being a consultant for them. He said, there's an assistantship. If you're interested, you can come on board or at least come down for an interview and meet the team and come on board if they like you. I said, Sure. So next thing I knew it, I was going from, you know, running, um, you know, a few restaurants and sort of having a a relatively secure position with, you know, a restaurant group that was growing upstate to being offered a position downstate and back in New York City. And again, for me, it was just sort of uh, a combination of gut reaction and also just, you know, wanting to go big. And I said, this is it, you know, if I'm going to, if I'm going to have an opportunity to go for it, I may as well go for it. And then basically transitioned down and, you know, took the position.
0: And that was when... uh La Palais started doing some events at Clique Sons too. So I feel like you had a chance to meet a broad range of both winemakers that are world famous and also a number of other sommeliers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, making that transition down, I tried to immerse myself as much as I could. Um, yeah, during La Palais, during other you know wine events, I started to host dinners there. I sort of took over the, the program at Colicchio and Sons Outright like in the spring of 2011, and so that gave me a lot of creative flexibility. So, you know, bringing in winemakers from California and France to do these dinners and, like you said, events like La Pole gave me a chance to really get out there and meet some new people and sort of really get some great exposure. And for me, it was all like, wow, this is awesome. I can't believe I have the chance to meet all these cool people, um, you know, these people who, are, who have been doing this for a good long while, and, you know, I, I can become friendly with them, learn from them, and, you know, spend time with them. For me, it was like a huge, huge you know bonus in terms of you know the decision to to come back to new york city and what was
0: the meatpacking district like in terms of working there
1: well, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, it was, I took over a program that was sort of being changed over. You know, there were a lot of wines still on the list at Calicchio Suns from the craft steak days, mm-hmm. um, which are not necessarily wines that I was particularly excited about. Um, you know, a lot of wines from Australia and California that were, you know, made in the model that you'd expect from like the 90s and early 2000s, really rich, really extracted wines. And so, you know, I was sort of, I t- took it upon myself to sort of move those wines and, you know, bring in a lot more Burgundy and Piedmont and, you know, Northern Rhone and, you know, great high acid wines that I thought really complemented um, Tom's cuisine. And the clientele there, though, is really mixed. You, what you'd expect from, I guess, most New York restaurants, you know, throughout the course of the week, you have, you know, a great mix of foodies and people who, you know, want to go out and eat well, um, business types, and then come the weekend, you get a lot of people coming in from, you know, Long Island and New Jersey and, you know, a lot of travelers and people basically coming to visit New York City.
0: Yeah, because it's easy from Jersey, right? Because you can just kind of go right on the, the West Side Highway and then... Go right to it. Totally, kind of right off the west side. Exactly, yeah.
1: So I mean, we had a lot of lot of clientele coming, you know, uh, across the river for us at the time, um, which definitely, you know, sort of changed the dynamic of the restaurant as you went into the weekend.
0: And what was it like working with Tom Calicchio? I mean, how many times did you hear him say "pack your knives and go"? Was that like, (laughs) like, yeah? Did you ever find him in the (laughs) office just practicing? He's like, "pack your knives and go." Pack your exactly, knives exactly. go. Totally. Thanks. With
1: me, he's like, pack your corkscrew and get out the door. <laughs> he's, he threw that at me all the time. He was great to work with. He's a, you know, a super intelligent guy and you know, very focused, very committed. And obviously, he's created some really great things. And you know, his food is, is still, I think, fantastic. So it's, it was always great to be able to work with him in that capacity, especially when we would do like, you know, a private dinner or something like that and work closely with him. You know it was really inspiring for me.
0: And what was the buying like in the New York side, like Manhattan side compared to what you'd seen before?
1: Well, again, I went from you know basically running a fairly small wine program, you know maybe as I said fifty to hundred selections, where people were really much more comfortable, you know, spending in the forty to sixty dollar range consistently, um, to going to one of those, you know, to a market where yeah, you had people who wanted to spend you know fifty or sixty dollars on a bottle, but then you had people who loved Grand Cru Burgundy and you know were prepared to spend money on older Barolo, and you know that was a great opportunity for me to sell those wines because I was excited about them. You know I had been studying and tasting as much as I possibly could. And obviously, you know, opening those bottles gives you a chance to really, really understand what's going on in the bottle, what was going on at the time. And um, it just gave me a really mixed platform um, at which to sell, which was great because I could basically sell whatever it is that I was excited about and people would get excited about it and go for it because, you know, they're going on on a recommendation on somebody who, you know, should know their stuff in, you know, a a very high-end restaurant in Manhattan. So, total world of difference. And again, every single day I was jazzed because, it was a big restaurant, too. I mean, you know, 100 seats in the main dining room and then another 50 or so in the uh, tap room. You know, I was running my ass off, you know, going back and forth and just getting people excited about wine. So, for me, it was a huge change from what I had been used to. And it was all that adrenaline but plus. So, it was, it was fantastic
0: for me. Was it kind of a later scene?
1: Um, I would say it's definitely more of an sort of earlier midnight kind of scene. You know, you have people finishing up with work coming out to the restaurant afterwards. Uh, We had a great beer selection, great, you know, tap wine selection, and people were, you know, coming out and having food right after they were done through the evening. But the late night scene wasn't huge because though it is in the meatpacking district, everyone coming there at the time was going out to the clubs and, you know, going out to places where they could party. And, you know, we were an upscale restaurant. And so, you know, people weren't necessarily coming to, you know, have dinner at like 1130 or 12 o'clock. So um, people would come in, have dinner and then, you know, head off to go dance and do whatever else. But we weren't like a crazy late scene.
0: Was that ever a concern? People were like, well, I need to drink more because I'm going to go dance or I need to eat less. or
1: Oh, yeah, totally. It sense. was just like the, some of the most ridiculous conversations some days where people were like, well, you know, I, we have reservations at this place and it's at midnight and we're going to do bottle service there. So should I get this steak or should I do the pasta? And I was just like, listen, I was just like, you'll, you'll eat well. Here's, here's what my recommendation will be on how much you want to eat. And obviously you have females and males who eat in a very different capacity. And so I was trying to make the most, you know, honest recommendations that I could, but it was new for me because I was like, i don't really usually think about this because I'm not going out and clubbing at the end of the night. So right. it's not something that really concerns me.
0: You, you hadn't had to prep people for bottle service before? You're
1: yeah, like, exactly. Well, you, gotta,
0: like... you gotta lay down a firm protein base exactly. before you go exactly. drink a hell of a lot of Yeah,
1: get, get your greens in, then get some <laughs> yeah, pasta, yeah. get lots of protein <laughs> because you need that absorptive capacity.
0: Yeah, <laughs> Maybe an extra bowl of pasta. Exactly. So, I mean, how long were you at,
1: at Collicio Suns? So, um, you know, I started up there at basically the very end of 2010, and I was there into the early months of 2012, so basically a year and a couple months. Um, to be honest, I wasn't necessarily planning on you know exiting. I wasn't. I didn't have any idea of what the next step was going to be at the time. Um, but you know, fortuitously. Um, you know, 11 Madison Park was, uh, Chef Daniel Humm and uh, Will Godara, they were in the works of opening a new restaurant, a new concept, which is the Nomad. And uh, my name was kind of thrown in the hat as a, a potential person to take over the wine program there. Um, and that basically led to an introduction with, you know, with Dustin Wilson, who's the MS who runs the wine program over at 11 Madison Park. Um, we got along really, really well. And, you know, I met Chef Humm and Will, and we got along well, and it seemed like, you know, a good fit. And so from there, Basically, I was offered the position, um, and it all kind of came together very, very quickly. Um, and it seemed like a great opportunity because those guys were doing amazing things at 11 Madison Park. And I figured, you know, if there's an opening in Manhattan, if there's a restaurant opening in Manhattan, and if there's a group where I could feel, you know, pretty sure that they were going to do a great job,
0: these were the guys to do it with. So does that mean you've been through basically two review processes, like in terms of uh, major uh periodicals, like newspaper reviews of the restaurant, because there was the review of Collegio Sons from Sifton, right?
1: Exactly. But I actually, I wasn't a part of it at oh, the time. Okay, I came okay. in um, basically maybe a half year um, or better, closer to a year after that review. I so see. I kind of came into the restaurant, took over, and the only actual re- review process that I've gone through at this point
0: is uh, with the Nomad. And what was that like? That was intense. Um, it was a pretty, uh, well, I talked about opening, so I would imagine that was kind of on a lot of people's radar totally uh
1: well you know again it's super high pressure you basically have you know arguably one of the the greatest you know uh partnerships that exist in terms of restaurants you have you know Will and uh and Chef Hume, who basically bought 11 Madison Park or you know found the uh, backers to buy 11 Madison Park from uh, Danny Meyer in the fall of uh, 2011, then shortly thereafter they're on, you know starting up on their opening, and you know I'm part of this process, and you know perfection is a must. you have to be 100 percent on all the time. You know it's very much the, the core ethos of, of the restaurant and so for us, it was you know, a day-to-day basis where we would you know have meetings early in the morning going through the opening, go through training our staff through the course of the day, have more meetings at the end of the day and constantly reassessing you know, what needs to be tweaked, how can we change? things up and you know it was just non-stop and you know it, maybe it's me going through my first review process or the nature of this restaurant group but you know we were always firing on all cylinders and just keeping our eye out you know for the reviewer but at the same time really trying to figure out also you know the nomad as a concept we had an idea of what it should be or what we wanted it to be but we also wanted to make sure that we were executing on that and that you know our guests were receiving it and that they were understanding what it is that we were trying to do and what is that So, I mean, I think that part of the mission statement, you know, as we sort of indicated is we wanted to be this perfect intersection of uptown and downtown, mm-hmm. and what does that mean? I think that you know, from a core concept, uptown dining. You think of you know, higher end fine dining, high quality ingredients, uh, you know, a great uh, hospitality experience um, on if, at the very highest level. Downtown, you think more casual, easier, you know, maybe better music, maybe looser, you know, attire. You're not as pressed to wear, you know, a tie and you know, button up, you know, your shirt and and wear a jacket over it. And so we wanted to give this experience where we could both be an incredible restaurant that. Delivered at the very highest level, but also be fun. And, you know, we, we gave, we put a lot of thought into that process from, you know, the uniforms to the music that we were doing to how we were approaching our tables and chatting with our guests and really wanting to sort of deliver, not necessarily a combination of those two restaurant styles, but to create a brand new concept and a brand new niche of restaurant where you could actually, you know, be great and have fun at the same time.
0: And how have you seen those approaches evolve over the time you've been there?
1: Well, I mean, I think that we, we've stayed true to um, the core of what we wanted to do, you know, what I just described. And um, I think, you know, there've been a few evolutions. So for instance, we started having both a la carte options as well as a tasting menu. And at some point we kind of realized that, you know, really what that restaurant wanted to be, what people were perceiving as is more of an a la carte restaurant. So, you know, we, we scrapped the tasting menu at some point. And today we're happy to, you know, put together a menu for somebody that wants to sit down and taste through the dishes. You know, that's awesome. I love that. But at the same time. We see, you know, a table of 20-something year olds who, you know, just want to eat this fantastic roast chicken and, you know, maybe not spend a ton on on wine, but still have a great experience next to a table of, you know, financiers who, you know, want to eat and drink really, really well. And it's so exciting because basically when you have those nights, which is basically every night, you have a station or you have a section of the dining room where you have this juxtaposition of people who, you know, are getting into good food next to people who have done this for a while, it's so satisfying because you realize that you can cater to many different clientele and you wear different hats. You have to, you know, chat with one particular table in a way that's a little bit different from another. You approach your wine service uh, a little bit differently and it's all about that sort of adaptation and being able to, you know, improvise and really sort of change your approach. Um, And it's not that every single table will expect or want the same exact thing from you. You really have to cater to that particular table.
0: And if I understand it correctly, there's multiple rooms that are a bit different.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of this amazing uh, differentiation of spaces. When you enter through the hotel, you know, through the lobby, you enter the atrium, which is this incredible well-lit space, you know, that has about 60 seats. You know, it's the heartbeat of the restaurant. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Obviously, you know, we're in a hotel and, you know, a lot of the hotel design was sort of based around the restaurant design. So we're catering not just to the, to, you know, New York City's foodie scene, but to the hotel guests as well, to people who are traveling. So the atrium is, you know, a little bit more loud. It's a little bit more boisterous. Um, You know, stone floors and this, you know, big, beautiful atrium glass ceiling. And uh, next to it is the parlor, which is kind of the more classical Uh, European dining room, European hotel dining room. It's plush. You know, it's very velvety. It's, you know, uh, draped really well with, you know, beautiful uh, pressed herbs that are up on the wall. Then that leads to the bar room, which is this grand, boisterous bar room, you know, that has, you know, bottles up on shelves and, you know, these, you know, huge elephants that are decorative. It's supposed to be like, you know, uh, the sort of hunting lodge bar and it's, you know, it's loud and it's rowdy and it's, it's, it's jam-packed all the time. And then that leads to the library, which is this other room, which has it, a lot of seats. And basically it's the equivalent of a lounge. You know, you think of most restaurants or places have a lounge space. It's kind of our lounge with, you know, couches and, and chairs and lower tables, um, but it's also a fully curated library. So you see books all around the base level and there's, you know, an upper level to it as well. And it's not just books that are thrown on a shelf. It's actually curated. There's specific sections. When you open the cocktail list and you go in there, you can see that, you know, there's a section for mixology, there's fashion, you know, there's voodoo, there's, you know, philosophy. So if you wanted to come in, you could, you know... Pick up a book and read. And it's cool because in the early part of the day in the library, people are taking meetings, having coffee, you know, having a little bit of quiet time. Through the afternoon, snacks, wine, cocktails kind of pick up. And then in the evening, you have groups who are drinking champagne and you know are eating snacks throughout the course of the evening. It's this really fun vibe. So I think the the really excellent component of what Nomad offers is that you can have a different experience. Depending on which room you're in, and you can come in and just have you know snacks and a beer, or you can come in and have you know a great meal and drink really really good wine, and we sort of offer all of that.
0: And how have you approached doing one wine list for all of those different kind of venues inside one roof?
1: I think again, I come back to this idea of making it um, accessible, but also giving a tremendous amount of um, options to the guests. So again. Using the example that I give you before, you know, we have this couple that's, say, you know, 26, 27, 28, and, you know, they just want to come in and drink well at $50. I want to have options, you know, in that range that I'm excited about that I would drink and I would love to recommend to them. And then you also have the clientele who wants to drink, you know, Bordeaux or Barolo or Burgundy with 20 years of age on it, and they're prepared to spend a little bit more money. And I want to have those options as well. So basically, it's this constant um, sort of, uh, I would say, not a recycling, but a replenishment of the seller in the capacity that I always want to have options at all points. So on a weekly basis, I'm constantly reassessing the list and making sure that there are a fair amount of options in that $40 to $50 range, you know, in the $100 range and then beyond. And um, also one of the, I think, fun things about the list is I base it, I break it down varietally so that, you know, people can sort of use that as the sort of model for it. And then within a varietal go to a different region, I can take them to a different place. But I also have a section of nomadic whites and nomadic reds, which is kind of like varietals, Or regions that are not really usually represented, um, say you know Lebanon or you know Austria for red wines, you know, or looking at Switzerland and you know, piping in some really cool examples there so that when you first get to that section, you're not jumping into Pinot right away. You have this page of cool wines and, you know, made from varietals or coming from regions that you're not expecting to see. And that's sort of the first thing you see. And I think it gives people a sense of experimentation and also maybe a little bit of a sense of trust in, you know, thinking that they want to have a conversation with somebody about the wine list instead of just kind of skimming through it and finding something that they might, you know, just normally go out and order. But
0: what are the mainstays of the list in terms of countries and regions?
1: Well, Through and through, I'm definitely a classicist. Um, You know, I love, you know, the great... Cruz of Burgundy, um, you know, certainly Bordeaux, Champagne, uh, and looking into Italy, Northern Italy, certain certainly Friuli, Piemonte. Um, I love Riesling, um, not just, you know, because of where I live for so many years upstate, but, you know, because it's a great food wine. And <clears throat> Chef Hume's cuisine calls for higher acid wines, cooler climate, higher acid wines. You know, there's a great interplay of acidity and fat in a lot of the dishes. And, you know, again, whether it's, you know, in a heavier entree or in a lighter appetizer, um, you know, those are the wines that pair so well with the food. So for me, I'd say, you know, the core is, you know, cool climate, higher toned varietals, higher tone expressions in a more traditional expression. That's always been sort of the the focus. So you'll see a lot of burgundy, champagne, you know, and higher acid whites on the list in general because again, they just go so well with the cuisine there.
0: And what's the interaction between yourself and Dustin?
1: So Dustin, again, he's the wine director at 11 Madison Park. I'm the wine director at Nomad. So we're running our own programs, but, you know, we get together, you know, once a week, once every other week and kind of brainstorm, you know, talk about what's going on in our respective programs. You know, we travel together, go to, you know, wine and food festivals together, have a chance to really sort of collaborate. And obviously he's, you know, a, a great force in the wine world as an MS. And so, you know, we have a really collaborative sort of, um, you know, dynamic, but at the same time we're running our programs that are, you know, on our, at our own pace. Um, but but it's just a great opportunity to sort of have a sounding board, have somebody else that is within the same company but running a very different, you know, restaurant wine program than mine. And you know, it's been a great relationship for us, and we've gotten a, a lot closer, especially in the last half year or so, now that Nomad's been open, um, you know, for a full year, and also since you know, Dustin's been able to sort of settle into New York a little bit more.
0: And what have you learned from him specifically? What are you like? Wow, I hadn't thought of it that way. Thank you.
1: So interesting. You know, I think that. Dustin comes from a background which is sort of not dissimilar from mine. You know, he sort of worked all levels and all capacities, you know, of a restaurant program. But he's got a couple of years on me. You know, he's he's kind of gone through it a couple of more times. And I think that, you know, there are situations that I'm put in where I'm like, you know, I'm not really sure what the best way to approach this particular situation. He's like, oh, you know what? I, I took care of something like that, you know, two years ago. Here's what you do. This is a situation where, you know, if you wanted to make good by this, you know, by this person or by this situation, you know, this is what worked for me. So I think, you know, what I've gained not only through friendship with him is basically having a sounding board and somebody who's had a little bit more experience, you know in the industry than I have. And so, you know it's a great resource for me to come with
0: questions that uh, on things that maybe he's gone through. you know, you do have that relationship with Dustin, but then you also have a large staff of your own at the nomad where you have a number of different assistants on so what's it like to lead that team and what are the interactions like day to day? So
1: I think that's a a really good talking point because first and foremost, the way that the wine team is sort of structured at Nomad is that we don't have, you know, one sommelier for a big station. We actually have more sommeliers interspersed throughout the dining room who are committed to a smaller number of tables. The way that we originally set out to sort of structure the teams, you know, typically you'll think you have, you know, a server, an assistant server, a back waiter. We really wanted the sommelier to be a part of that sort of captain team. We wanted them to have a great connection with the guests. And, you know, not just popping a bottle and making a recommendation, but being there throughout the course of the meal, talking about the food, you know, talking about the restaurant and, you know, really bringing not just, you know, a wine experience, but, you know, a hospitality experience as well. Obviously, you know, based on what I've been talking with you about, hospitality is huge for me. And I want to kind of, you know, dis- maybe dissolve the notion that, you know, sommeliers are, you know, hoity-toity people who know a lot about wine and will only come out of the cellar to sell a good bottle. And I think that this is a really good platform to do that. So, I love the fact that we have this team of Psalms who are really like in there with their guests are seeing them through the course of the meal and are not just doing wine service, but talking about everything else. Um, And again, I think that sort of satisfies my desire to push the hospitality button, right? I mean, it's like, it's not just the technical component of, you know, selling wine, but it's really that sort of artistic and more, um, you know, human-based involvement where you really get to interact with guests, not just about their wine, but about their overall experience. So for me, the model that we set out with, I think, is a great one because it it gets the wine professional and the guest more connected. It breaks down the barriers. It makes them seem more accessible. And I think for the future of restaurants overall i think that's a really important step because we we still have a lot of work i think to sort of break down that wall in terms of people thinking that you know wine professionals are only you know only out to get the most money out of your wallet as possible so the team that we have you know is awesome because they come from many different backgrounds so just to give you perspective you know one of them is a, a you know a writer and another one is a former dancer and you know another person is as a gm and wine director who just transitioned all the way from the west coast you know, to come and join the team. And so we have this very diverse team, but they're also, we're all pretty young, you know, late twenties, you know, early thirties. And so I think that it's also sort of a testament to the fact that more and more people are getting excited about wine at an earlier age and are realizing what the potential is, you know, in our culture. And everyone brings a different strength and a different weakness. So throughout the course of the week, we're always doing stuff together as a team. We're always, you know, we receive all our orders together and we're racking them out together. We're doing blind tastings together. I'm bringing in, you know, winemakers, you know, and reps for tastings and we're all tasting together. It's all about that sort of community and sort of really building on it because you can learn as much as you can, you know, on your own, but if you have the opportunity to benefit from other people's strengths and you can benefit from your weakness and, you know, gaining information from other people. I think that ultimately that kind of a da- dynamic is great. And, you know, the sad truth is, you know, in restaurants, like as much as I'd love to see all of the other Psalms, um, you know, who are at the other, at other restaurants throughout New York City, we don't have much time. You know, you, you work a really, really long day. And at the end of it, sometimes you're not necessarily always, you know, don't have the time or don't have the strength to go out and, you know, grab a couple of beers. It's more, you know, the events like La Polée and, you know, food and wine festivals where we really get to hang out. Um, so having that dynamic in-house, I think, is, you know, really beneficial and is, you know, a constant support and a reminder that you're doing the right thing, that you're, you know, pursuing a noble endeavor, you're learning more and you're, you're gaining something personally as well as giving something to your guests and to the rest of the wine team.
0: And what's next for the Nomad in terms of the wine program? I mean, what can we be looking forward to as, as the seasons change?
1: Definitely. Well, I mean, you know, we're going into summer 2013 right now, so you know, just continuing to sort of build up, and I want a little bit more depth and a little bit more breadth of the wine program in general. So just constantly building the cellar, and you know, building on verticals, um, discovering kind of more unique wines from around the world to put one or two examples of, and really just sort of constantly balancing out that you know that dynamic of new fun wines and wines that people are less exposed to, and having you know those really classic expressions. You know, I want the the depth of the cellar to be as great as possible. I want to have more vintages of more wines, but at the same time, I don't want it to be a tome. I don't want it to be a huge list that, you know, people feel daunted by. So just basically constantly having that dance, having that balance of, you know, bringing on wines that are more accessible as well as wines that are more, you know,
0: of the collector's type. And do you see a connection between your early pursuits of music and science and wine today and how you approach it, or are those just different things?
1: No, I think that very much the reason why you know I enjoy what I do now so much and how I approach it is based on that because again I have there's the artistic component of what we do how we interact with you know our guests and also you know how we find passion in certain wines as well as the technical component uh, whether it's you know running the wine program or you know seeking out specific wines I think it's had a huge influence on me um, when I talk to the sommeliers that you know that I have at the restaurant uh, who work with me at the Nomad and whether it's the servers um, or other people the team i feel that you know bringing that musical component has been the most important and the most influential component because again wine can be a really daunting thing and you know it's something that you have to be able to speak confidently about with your guests because they won't believe you they won't think that you're steering them in the right direction unless you are competent and confident in it so to that and i always think and i reference you know in classical piano it's not as much improvisation. It's taking, you know, a beautiful work of art that somebody has put months, if not years into and learning the technicals, learning the notes, you know, learning the nuance and the progression of the piece and making it, then making it your own. So you learn the technicals and then you put your own expression into it. And you won't be able to create something beautiful unless you have mastered the technical components of it and are then able to infuse your personality into it. And so for me, wine is very similar. You need to be well-read and well-versed and study as much as possible Possible so you really know the technical details of it so that you can really hear what your guest is asking, you know, of you when you're making a recommendation. And that's something that I really take to heart in a really significant way. And I try to talk to, you know, my guests and, and to my staff about that quite a bit, because if they're not prepared to put in the time and, you know, really, really get the technicals down, they're never going to give that experience to the guests that, you know, I would envision a wine program like the Nomads to really be able to deliver.
0: And you spoke a little bit about the kind of wines that tend to go well with Daniel Holmes' food, but what's he like to work with and what's that kitchen like? Kitchen
1: is a machine. It's uh, I, first of all, I love the the kitchen team. You know, the uh, executive sous chef and the sous chefs there are fantastic to work with, and you know, Daniel's a, a great inspiration. Um, it's it's technical. It's very tight. You know, it's very very rigorous in terms of you know how they run run the team. Every time an order comes in, you know, the expediter's you know yelling out the order, and if you're in the kitchen and if you hear that order coming in, everyone has a resounding "we." you know, everyone acknowledges that order coming in. And it's just part of like, you know, the constant, you know, attention to detail and focus that the kitchen has. So Daniel brings that, but he's also, you know, in addition to being a great chef, he loves, loves wine, he loves great wine. And, you know, he's just very easy to be able to chat with. And he's well-versed, he's, he's traveled quite a bit. And, you know, he's able to talk to you about this, that, and the other. So we'll talk about everything from music to, you know, what's going on in the restaurants to, you know, maybe mutual friends that
0: we have. So he's just, you know, a pleasure to work with because
1: there's nothing that you can't get along with him about,
0: and what's the New York Manhattan scene like in terms of the wine consumers?
1: Again, very mixed. I think that um, you know what I. What's been a great pleasure for me is I can sort of you know work at all different levels. Right now, I think that more more and more people are willing to experiment. Whereas you know, just using as a quick reference, you know, two years ago, you know, at On Sons, I'd have less people who would be you know curious to try one from the Jura based on my recommendation. Today, they're like, "Wow! If you if you're excited about it, sign me up." You know, even if it's at a more affordable price point um, where people shouldn't be as scared to maybe you know take a risk. Today, people are very very willing to give it a try. And I'm always asking the guests that we have at the restaurant, "Well, you know, you seem really excited about wine. What what do you like to drink, or what do you like to read about? How do you what how did you?" Get into wine, and what's really satisfying to me is that more people are reading uh, periodicals and reading magazines. So New York Times, Eric Asimov's pieces, um, reading Wine Spectator, and you know Wine Enthusiast magazine, and are listening to things like a podcast like this, or you know, are seeking out information online. So they're educating themselves, and that gives us a greater opportunity to really get out there and, you know, sell some fun wines, wines that may be a little bit more geeky or a little bit more off the beaten path. And it's just like a more surefire sort of approach to our guests today than it's ever been. So I guess, you know, to put it in a nutshell, that level of experimentation, that level of flexibility and, you know, a desire to try new things is even greater today. There's no like, there's not as much of a safety net for people as there used to be. I think they're willing to just go on that, you know, high wire and just kind of go for it.
0: Thomas Pastizak, he's going for it at the Nomad Hotel where he's the wine director. Thank you very much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Thomas Pastizak of the Nomad. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs,